Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. I am your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on podcast today is Rick Davis, who started his career in economics and commerce, had a very successful career before he developed prostate cancer and moved into health advocacy. In this podcast, he talks about that journey and what he's learned along the way and what drives his interest in health advocacy. You're very welcome to the show, Rick. We're delighted to be speaking with you today. Now, I know that you are an ardent patient advocate, but I want to start the conversation several years earlier to where this journey started for you. Talk about Rick, the person who was before you started on the job towards advocacy. Well, I was I was hardly a, a socially minded individual. I was very much business-driven and economically driven. I mean, even going back to school, I, I had a tough time with sciences. I loved economics. That's largely what I studied. And I went, I, I got a very, very good education. I mean, I'm very thankful for every place I was educated. School that you may have heard of called Haberdashers in the UK, then Manchester University, and then I went to the University of Chicago, and all the way along the line, I had just incredible teachers. In fact, at the University of Chicago, I opted to do an honors paper with some original research, and I did it with a good buddy who's still a buddy, and we picked our own honors committee, and since we picked them, all three received Nobel Prizes. Well, wow. So uh, that was... The, the most recently, about four, three or four years ago, and then I and then I was always in a business track, and I kind of burnt out. And prior to finally burning out, I started becoming much more socially aware, and I wanted to do something that just didn't result in in creating commercial profit. And I remember a guy saying to me, he was an, an executive vice president at Chase Manhattan Bank, and I was working back at Chase for the second step, for my second step. And him saying to me about the work that I was doing, it was God's work. And I think that might have been the thing that actually turned me, because I couldn't think of anything that was less God's work than the work that I was doing. And thought to myself, you know... I really would like to be doing something that creates a lot more social value and a lot more social profit. I was attending a synagogue at the time that had a strong social conscience, and I was listening to people talking there who were working for these nonprofits, these these development nonprofits. And it came to a point in the early 90s, well, mid-90s, that I left Chase and I decided I wanted to take a track into nonprofit work or what you might call in Australia charity work. And then I had to find where I was going in that charity work. And I went through a lot of iterations. It included spending five years in Romania and creating a food bank and then doing a lot of advocacy work and finally finishing out in health advocacy only because I got diagnosed with uh, stage three prostate cancer at a fairly young age, at 56. 
which is not that young, but it's relatively young in terms of prostate cancer because the average age prostate cancer diagnosis is is about 10 years more than that. Yeah. And that is really what led me in. Now, led me into to, to doing the work I'm doing today. Now, I do recall what, this is, this is sort of a little weird, a, a little off base, but whilst I was living in Romania, I would from time to time go to Israel and visit with friends and family and what have you. And a good buddy of mine from college, from the University of Manchester, said, oh, we're running this retreat. Why did you come over for this retreat? And the retreat was above the Dead Sea. And I had visited that area a couple of times, and I loved that area. And I went to this retreat. And in the course of that retreat, the person that was leading the retreat spent some time with, with me. And they said, you're, they said, you know, you're, you're a healer. And I said, no. I said, that's not really what I'm doing. And at that point in time, in Romania, we were working on the food bank. In fact, it was actually that trip to Israel that started me on the creation of a food bank. And I said, no, that, that's, that's not me. And here I am 20 years later, and that's exactly what I'm doing. Not in the way that you do it, but all of the work is healing work. Mm. And the huge healing umbrella, there's so many different ways you can heal, and we're, I'm doing healing work. You started this journey in a very different place. You were clearly a type A personality. You were driven. You were a high achiever, clearly a high achiever. And you eventually found something about that not very satisfying because you decided to move in a different direction. Can you remember the moment that happened? What was it? What made you decide to move into the more social side of your work? I think it was this guy turning around and saying to me, well, you're doing God's work. And what was I doing? I was trying to say, chase as much money as I could from their uh, wrecked uh, real estate portfolio in the 90s. And they hired me back. I was chase trained, which was a great place to train. And I was chase trained after business school. And they hired me back 10 years later to try and help them bail them out of this real estate mess that they found themselves in in the late 80s and the early 90s. And I did that for about four or five years. It was a frustrating job, but when this EVP said to me, executive vice president said to me, you're doing God's work. This is not God's work. And that combined with hearing this very romantic presentation of relief and development work made me think, you know what? I want to do something different. Now, I started off in the worst job of all, because everybody said, oh, you've got a good business brain, so you, you, you have to go into, uh, into sort of legacy work, plan giving. And I did that for about nine months, and I hated that. It was the worst. And eventually I got fired because I was being set up to fail in that job. And eventually I got fired, and I was sort of fishing around when a job came up to go to Romania for a very reputable nonprofit, mm-hmm. and that's so. I, that's how. I, so I think the actual time that I switched was probably sometime around the time this guy said, "You're doing God's work," which I, I sort of that offended me, and just listening to these people and talking to these people who were working 
and were doing God's work. And my thinking, oh, I want to do what they're doing. What was it about the phrase God's work that moved you so much? That you can spend your time and efforts creating value for the greater good was much more attractive to me than creating value either for myself or for the company that I was working for. It was no longer appealing. What was appealing was, how can we make this world a better place? How can I leave this world in a better place than I found it? And then the unthinkable happened and you end up having prostate cancer. Well, first of all, are you, are you well? Yes, thank you. Yeah, I am in durable remission, but as you may know, you know when you when you have stage three prostate cancer, you can't talk about you can't use the uh, the C word cure. So you have to test each year, and it can come back any time. But you know, knock on wood, it has not. But that that was what took me after I did the relief and development, and after I did some advocacy work. The next phase after that was was this health work, yeah. the health work, which I've now been doing since for about 12 or 13 years. Talk a little bit about that. How has that unfolded? Initially, I was diagnosed with pretty serious prostate cancer. Fortunately, it wasn't clearly metastatic, but it was stage three, meaning it was locally advanced disease. And I also had a fairly aggressive type of prostate cancer, a very high, a high Gleason score. And it didn't bother me. It bothered other people who heard what they said, but it didn't bother me in the sense that what was to be was to be. I couldn't change what I had, so I had to deal with it. And for the previous three or four years, since uh, that time I was living in Northern California and I'd been attending a retreat center, and I learned a little bit about living in the moment and a little bit about meditating and breathing. And it just seemed to me like this was just a time to breathe and to say, this is what I got, and I've got to deal with it. Mm-hmm. And there are other people who were saying, well, you know, you've got to take this more seriously and blah, blah, blah. It is what it is. And as luck would have it, I I was in an HMO at the time, but the HMO didn't have the facilities to treat me. And so I was lucky enough to get a good part of my treatment from a fantastic center of excellence, uh, UCSF, uh, UCSF Hospital, and one of the best prostate cancer hospitals on the West Coast. and. They told me up front that I was going to have to take hormone therapy for about two and a half years. Now, hormone therapy in the context of prostate cancer means they take the testosterone out of your body. And I've always been an endurance athlete. I'd run triathlons, but that was always that was always my my strength. So my first thought was, well, what's this going to do to my running? Because because I relied so much on it to keep me balanced. I mean, that was really my meditation, or a lot of my meditation. And there was absolutely no support for exercise. There was great support for diet in the hospital at the time. No support for exercise. So I started thinking, well, why can't we do the same sort of thing we do for diet, where you refer somebody to a registered dietitian? Why can't we do that for exercise? 
because the ducks don't have time to talk to you about exercise. I will say that in 2006, 2007, I was diagnosed. I was, well, the, the first indication of a high PSA was in May of 2007, and I was diagnosed around the August. But exercise did not have the prestige, and prestige is the wrong word. It didn't have the positive connotations with respect to cancer that it does today. There were very few studies. So the most work had been done with breast cancer around lymphedema and uh, encouraging women who had had mastectomies to exercise to minimize the amount of lymphedema. There was a woman, Melissa Irving, at Yale who had done some really good studies, but there really wasn't a lot of work. And I took it upon myself to see what we could do at UCSF to try and encourage exercise. Now, today, Movember, for example, has has partnered with UCSF and many other universities, and there's a plethora of information, not just about prostate cancer, but about the importance of exercise for pretty much any cancer, which for me is very rewarding. So... That was one advocacy cause that was really important to me. The second one was that there was very little support for men who were placed on hormone therapy. And sadly, it's better than it was, but it's still not great. The doctors slap men with high-risk recurrent advanced prostate cancer on hormone therapy, and they don't tell them what to expect. And there needed to be much better education. So the other thing that we started doing at the same time at at UCSF was to write a pamphlet. UCSF had a series of very good pamphlets for all different types of situations and cancers, and we needed one for prostate cancer. That in itself was controversial because there was conflict between the urologists and the radiation oncologists on one side and the medical oncologists on the other side because the medical oncologists didn't want the the radonks and and the surgeons interfering with the hormone therapy. That created a lot of problems, but let's just say it took about two years, but we, we wrote a pamphlet, which I think I have right here. So we wrote this pamphlet, and... I would say we probably, I mean, it's gone to thousands and thousands of men at this point in time, and it's made a huge difference. I actually wrote the first draft of this, but it was finally published, I think, around 2011 or 2004. So the two projects that I had in mind for advocacy, at the same time, I was participating in a physical support group, and the guy that ran it was actually very revered as a patient advocate at UCSF and in other places, and he got me involved. And that was around 2011. And at that time, it, it just occurred to me, what is available virtually for peer support for any disease? Right? So support groups are incredibly valuable, but they're always physical groups in a particular place, and that excludes people 
who are geographically disadvantaged, who are socially disadvantaged, and who are physically disadvantaged. I mean, if you live an hour and a half, and you live, you know, halfway up the Oregon coast, and you're an hour and a half or two hours from Portland, you can't attend a prostate cancer support group or a breast cancer support group, or even where I live right now. I live in the car. I live in a pretty rural area. If a woman wants to go to a breast cancer group, she's got to drive an hour to get to the group and an hour back. Does she want to do that in an evening? So I started looking, and there was nothing on the internet. There was no. There were there were two groups that were available. One was for diet, and the other was for postpartum depression. And I thought to myself, what we could do is try and create some sort of virtual support. And we did. I did that originally through a written support group called that was sponsored by a profit company called Inspire. They have two hundred and sixty odd different forums. And I was active on one of their forums, and I noticed that there was somebody advertising a telephone group, and I reached out to them, and this was for prostate cancer, and we grew that. And we were a teleconference. And the guy that ran it was really into men's support groups. And I remember the first or second meeting that I was in there, I'd hear them chugging beers and drinking and of course there was no visual so i said what's going on here oh you came in late we have a secret word and whenever we say the secret word we have to take a chug of beer this was the type of group that it was right and i had come from a background of support that was very technically driven so a lot of technical information and over time I worked to develop this group, and it became much more technical to the chagrin of the guy that had started it. But it expanded, and it went from being a group a month to a group a week. Every time we got too big, we had to split. So we either created an, a new group, or we created a group for a different type of prostate cancer. So we would separate those with low and intermediate risk from those with high risk and advanced because we didn't want the people with the low risk to have to hear what happens when this disease gets advanced and out of hand. And to make the story short, around 2014 or 15, it was actually at the time when Zoom was in beta. And we had been trying to develop our own beta platform for video conferencing like we're doing right now, we decided to use GoToMeeting and we took the we took the platform online with GoToMeeting. And at the time we did that, we had, I think, six groups, either four groups or six groups, I forget. But we realized that this was a good platform. A lot of people, we wanted to make sure that the platform had the lowest hurdles to entry. So all the calls were accessible by telephone. You didn't have to use the internet because there are, especially in a disease that affects older people, there are a lot of technophobes. They don't want to deal with internet, but they're happy to pick up the telephone. That's all changed in the last six or eight months, as have the willingness to share a video screen. 
So this was around 2015, and it was always in my mind that whatever we did, we could do for much more than prostate cancer, but we had to get it right. So prostate cancer was the pilot. And if we get it right for prostate cancer, then we could start opening up to other conditions, other cancers, and maybe even much more than cancer, because peer support is good for any you start off life as a technical expert with a type A personality, developing a career, a very, very typical academic uh, career. And you enter into a world where it is very political. It's very technical, it's very political, and it's very business-minded. This is the, the business of medicine. And it's interesting that you were called a healer once. Now you're talking about the democratization of that whole process. You're talking about peers, patients looking after each other, patients providing that information. We are seeing a sea change in the way healthcare is developing over the world. And COVID has accelerated that immensely because, as you say, it's no longer, I mean, it's laughable now that you could only connect because you had a telephone line. Now people are on Zoom, they're on Skype, they're on whatever you, whatever platform you were talking yeah. about. Looking back on this, can you see how that made sense at the time? And it's really interesting that you were so, you had such equanimity about having the diagnosis of prostate cancer because somehow it's led you to this point. I want to go back to the earlier point. I think the thread through everything that I've done is that, that I did have I mean, I had a good academic bent, but I also had a good business brain, and I was always entrepreneurial. Even when I worked for large corporations, I was entrepreneurial. So to take that entrepreneurial skill and shift it into a social environment was not a big step for me. And when I was in Romania and I saw the need for a food bank, I figured out how to put a food bank together with national distribution. And I did it with smoke and mirrors. Everything I do, I have to do with smoke and mirrors because I don't have the capital. I don't have the money to do it. So you've got to find, I had to find somebody to donate the food. I had to find somebody to distribute the food. I had to go out and find make, find a list of who we wanted to distribute the food to. But all of it, this is from being an entrepreneur, which is essentially knowing where to, to take the elements and put them together, who's good at what, and just combining them and, and, and making sure that they mesh. And all of the social work, I mean, I describe myself as a social entrepreneur and everything I've done is, has been in that vein. And what we're doing now with ANCAN, in 2016, we formalized and became a, a public charity or a, a 501c3 in, in, in the United States. Because we needed some sort of business model and because it was going to be easier to raise money as a 501c3 than as an individual. Now, we called ourselves Anti-Cancer Foundation and we've now changed that to ANCAN because we're more than just cancer. So we don't want to be identified with just with cancer. But the whole evolution of ANCAN has been a social entrepreneurial effort, putting all the pieces together to build something. And just another thought that I, I, I just want to share with you. I still tend, yes, I have ideas of where ANCAN's going, but I tend to live still fairly 
in the moment. I mean, yes, I'm planning and I, I'm thinking ahead a little bit, but I never, I never float up in the helium balloon to look down on Anken. And I had to do that about three weeks ago because I was writing a grant to one of the pharmaceuticals. And all of a sudden, what I'm seeing is a much larger entity than I ever thought existed when I sit at this desk every day and I've got three computer screens and I'm, you know, switching and, and trying to make things happen and I'm talking to patients and I'm talking to new moderators. And all of a sudden I look and we've got 25 groups. We're dealing with 11 conditions. I've got 60 volunteers here and we don't pay anybody a dime. How has this all happened? We're back to the smoke and mirrors, Moez. You're talking here about disrupting an entire industry. We call healthcare an industry. It's an obscene word, I think, because it's about money. And I don't mm. think taking people's pain away should be about money. However, that's what it is. And looking back, the phrase, you're doing God's work, makes a little bit more sense, don't you think? Yeah, it does make more sense. And, you know, maybe God's work is is reflected for me in the gratification that, that I get on a daily basis, just knowing that I've been able to help someone. Now, you went into medicine because you wanted to help people. That was what drove you, right? But I didn't go, I, I went down an economic tack. That wasn't what was driving me. Now I'm, I'm finding the, the, the pleasure and the gratification that you've always known. And I, I love that. And fortunately, you know, I, and economically, I haven't taken any salary. I, I hope to at some point be in a position where we can, I can take a small draw. But I've moved and cut my, cut my uh, jacket to suit my cloth. So I just size down and size down. Why? Because I want to keep doing this. And it's not about how much I'm going to earn. It's about how much gratification I can create every day. For myself, that's the selfish motive. And in doing that, I know I'm helping somebody else. Rick, where can people find you? So our URL is ancan.org. Alpha Nancy, Charlie Alpha Nancy, ancan.org. And if they go to that website and they click on groups on the homepage, they'll see all the different groups that we're offering right now. And we, we do offer groups beyond cancer. So we have a sarcoidosis group. We have a group for multiple sclerosis. We have a group was really interesting. And I always, I always knew this. And, and I'm, this is one of the areas I'm trying to develop is that this virtual model really suits itself to rare diseases. Because I talked about the difficulty that people had in getting together physically, either you know, geographical, physical, or social. But there's another group of people where there are so few of them that have disease, how are they going to meet up? So we are now bringing people together with rare diseases. We have three groups right now, and we would love to do more work with rare diseases. And we have the sarcoidosis folks. We have a new group that's just about to start for renal medullary carcinoma which is a type of kidney cancer. Interesting because it's somehow related to sickle cells, so it's very, very prevalent in minority communities. And then we have a male breast cancer group, which is really interesting. 
And because Romeo breast cancer is a rare disease. And we are actually going to start October 22nd. We're launching our first group that's on a UK, European, Africa timeline for male breast cancer. And we have a couple of really prestigious sponsors for that. So I'm very, very excited. So, yes, sir. If you go to Lancan, the other thing you'll find is the other thing we do is we, we, we also run webinars and uh, we're running a series right now that's been very, very successful for active surveillance prostate cancer. And we're running another series that will interest you called The Talk. And it examines how families talk within themselves about a disease that one of the family members is living with. So we've done one for prostate cancer, we've done one for ovarian cancer, and the next one we're doing at the end of the month will be for multiple sclerosis. And then we're already talking about next year's series. Because as you well know, a lot of times families don't talk between themselves. Siblings don't talk to siblings. Parents don't talk to kids. Kids don't talk to parents. The communication within the family unit about a disease is poor. We will make sure that all of this is in our show note alongside your your uh, podcast. Rick Davis has been an absolute joy speaking with you. You are about disrupting an industry that badly needs to be disrupted. It is about patients looking after each other, looking after themselves in partnership with doctors. You are making an enormous difference to the lives of the people that you take taken on to serve, and we salute you. It's been a pleasure talking to you. And uh, we'll stay in touch. That would be wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Journal of Health Design. Better health by design. Visit us at thejournalofhealthdesign.com.